Good morning, Greg Mackling. Good morning, Brett McGarry. I uh, got plenty of Olympics in this weekend. I uh, I don't think I've ever paid this much attention. You're addicted. I am, and I'm finding that uh, it's it's interesting to learn all the very the different terminology for each sport. You know, I was watching the ice dancing last night, and they were talking about twizzles. Yes. And then I'm watching the half pipe, whether it's the skiing or the particular well, in the snowboarding. There was uh, into a double chuck. Which is uh, named after the famous Canadian snowboarder Michael Michael Chuck. Nice. Uh, into a ten sixty alley oop uh, grocery cart. I don't know. <laughs> grocery. <laughs> What's great about you is, and I know this from spending so much time with you over the last year and a half, that when there's something you're unsure of, you will Google it or send me a text message, which is great, <laughs> and ask you about it. You're asking me about uh, the timeouts and the curling, and then you said you need to figure out what a jam and a peel and a freeze are. Have you figured those? out yet? You know what? I found an article that actually, <laughs> there is, I did, I googled it, and I've been meaning to read it, but it's a beginner's guide to, hang on a second here, a beginner's guide to the rules of Olympic curling. Nice. And it's it's on the Grand Slam of Curling's website, and it's just, it's a complete breakdown, sort of a curling 101. Good, good for you. I would have been more than happy to crack a beer with you and explain all those. I said, uh, jam, need to learn what a jam, a peel, and a freeze are. Jam, peel, freeze. Sounds like a 1990s pop R&B act. Yeah, the peaches and cream or some peaches and herb, was it? (laughs) Uh, Oh. Was that right? Peaches and herb? Well, Snoop Dogg. Behind the glass, Jerry? Yeah, they were from the 70s. Yeah, oh. 70s. I'm too old. And Snoop Dogg had a song a few years ago called Peaches and Cream. Oh, Which really? he performed on the Fox show Empire. I'm guessing he wasn't talking about the kind of corn on the cob that we, we enjoy here in Manitoba. Probably not. Yeah, I'm, I'm just guessing. Uh, how about the uh, article you sent me yesterday? Jackie's mom uh, was trying to explain this to me the other day, and now I get it. Yeah. About the fact that Rachel Holman's husband spotted double fisting... The brewskis at about nine o'clock in the morning, Korea time. Yeah. And he says, I'm not a drunk. I'm I'm just Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> I love this headline at SBNation.com. Olympic curler's husband double fisting his third and fourth beers at 9 a.m. is yeah. a legend. Yes. Love it. Just trying to keep his nerves at bay. And as it turns out, he needs that because... Wow. What's going on? Rachel Holman, another loss. 7-5 loss to China. The Canadian team now three and four. They're in seventh place in the round robin. They need so Holman's team has to win the last two games and then have the leaders lose theirs just to get to the top four and advance to the semifinals. Well, it sounds like a wing and a prayer. Yeah, really. And you mentioned it. Was it Thursday or Friday? We were talking about if Canadians don't win gold, never mind not qualify for the playoffs in curling. It's almost like don't come home. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's uh, the Kevin Cooey uh, at least bounced back and has is back on the winning side. But uh, yeah, dangerous times for the uh, the Olympic curlers, and uh, you know, thought it looked like everything was okay. She opened zero and three, and then she went uh, three for three after that, and it looked like uh, everything was going to be cool, and the ship had righted itself, but not so much. Sean Germain, uh, Rachel Holman's husband, may start his days these days with beer. You and I like to start our days with a banana. Oh yeah, and you may have noticed this in the store. I thought it was just me. I took the boys grocery shopping. I think it was Friday after they didn't have school on Friday. So after I collected them, we did a couple of chores. We went grocery shopping and all the bananas were green. Yep. I couldn't believe it. I thought, well, it's no big deal. I, I seem to 
kind of let too many bananas uh, go to the rotten side on the counter anyway. <laughs> but I, then this uh, story uh, caught my attention on the global website. What's with the green banana? Shoppers fret over fruit selection. And it turns out that yellow bananas are at a premium right now. Yeah, there's weather problems in the tropics in the areas where the, the bananas are being grown. Their uh, fields are being flooded out, so that's uh, caused a significant reduction in the supply. Now, on Saturday, Greg, I spoke with the owner of Food Fair, Bunther Zeed, and he introduced me to a process that I didn't even know exists. They have to, he said there isn't enough time to, because there's a shorter supply, they have to rush out what they have, so right. they don't have time to gas the bananas. And I thought, excuse me? <laughs> so here's what he says. As you know, they come on a boat. They're really green. They really don't age or ripen uh, while they're on the boat. And they have to sort of put them in a, like a chamber, gas them, and the, the, the ripening process starts up again. So they gas the bananas with ethylene, which I, I, looked, I Googled that. And uh, that's apparently a lot, of the, a lot of fruits give off this gas anyway. So it's a natural thing, but it just helps them ripen a little bit. So they don't have time to, to give them the full treatment so they're just going out to the grocery store is green. Now, Munther did point out as well that his, uh, at least on Saturday, that his most recent shipment of bananas was a nice mix of yellow and green. Okay. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I didn't know that that's what they did with the bananas. Well, I know when uh, hockey coaches or football coaches are on thin ice in terms of what's going on with their respective teams, uh, there is a saying within sports, you know, the coach shouldn't be buying any green bananas. Really? <laughs> in terms of uh, waiting for them to ripen, right? Okay. Because you might be changing households pretty soon because you may be getting fired, right? <laughs> Don't buy any green bananas. <laughs> But apparently wow. there are a couple different things that you can do to expedite the ripening process yourself. One of them apparently is to put them next to tomatoes. Yeah. Uh, because maybe that's the chemical that the tomatoes uh, emit. Did you say it was ethylene? Yeah. And you can also put a towel over them to make it dark, and apparently that helps as well. So. And putting them beside lemons also helps oh, lemons uh, the as citrus, well. and the lemons helps the bananas ripen. Well, there you go. So if yeah. you're having banana crises, you're not alone. The green bananas are uh, commonplace in the stores right now. Yeah, it should only be a couple of weeks. I was at Superstore yesterday, I think, and the, the bananas were indeed green, but the organic ones were nice and yellow, so I grabbed some of those. So, yeah, Greg and I eat a lot of <laughs> We're a couple of monkeys, really. Yeah, we, we, for sure. We will walk out at, I don't know, 8 o'clock, and you'll grab a banana, and mm -hmm. you'll come back in, and I'll have one, so... Yeah, it's an e it's easy. It's an easy snack. Beers and banana on M&M on this Tuesday morning. On his fourth day in India, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau made his first major announcement. Indian companies have committed to hiring 5,000 people in Canada and investing a billion dollars in our country. But as Global News' as Abigail Beeman reports from Mumbai, there's a lot of untapped economic potential in a country with a population of 1.3 billion. Eight billion dollars worth of trade flows between Canada and India every year. But as the Prime Minister told a group of business students yesterday, that's a drop in the bucket compared to the two billion dollars in trade we do with the United States 
every day. Today, the Prime Minister met with six CEOs of major companies that do business in Canada, including Tata Sons, and some made promises for expansion. Infosys says it would like to double its Canadian presence, adding hundreds of jobs in the next two years, while pharmaceutical company Jubilant Barthia Group says it would like to add $100 million to its operation in Montreal. Tonight is all about Bollywood as Trudeau meets with some major stars, including Shah Rukh Khan. Abigail Beeman, Global News, Mumbai. Thank you very much, Abigail. And now from Mumbai, Greg, to, to Florida and the, the gun situation, which continues to weigh on your mind. I think for the first time ever, Brett, uh, students and the, and the victims, the survivors of these shootings are taking the stage, taking uh, the spotlight. And I think that's really the way it ought to be. Here's the names you may recognized from the weekend. If not, I believe you're going to be hearing a lot more about Emma Gonzalez. This past weekend was filled with vigils, funerals, and protests as a result of the high school massacre in Parkland, Florida. In the aftermath of this tragedy, survivors of the shooting are galvanized and are speaking out unlike any other similar tragedy. I'm not sure if we would be comfortable or she would be comfortable with the word star, but the voice and face of this movement over the weekend was, in fact, Emma Gonzalez. She's a senior at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, and she addressed a gun control rally on Saturday in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Here's part of her 11-minute address. I know this looks like a lot, but these are my AP Gov notes. They haven't already had a moment of silence in the House of Representatives, so I would like to have another one. Thank you. Every single person up here today, all these people should be at home grieving. But instead, we are up here, standing together, because if all our government and president can do is send thoughts and prayers, then it's time for victims to be the change that we need to see. to the Constitution, our guns have developed at a rate that leaves me dizzy. The guns have changed and the laws have not. We certainly do not understand why it should be harder to make plans with friends on weekends than it is to buy an automatic or semi-automatic weapon. In Florida, in Florida, to buy a gun, you do not need a permit, you do not need a gun license, and once you buy it, you do not need to register it. You do not need a permit to carry a concealed rifle or shotgun. You can buy as many guns as you want at one time. I read something very powerful to me today. It was from the point of view of a teacher, and I quote, when adults tell me I have the right to own a gun, all I can hear is, my right to own a gun outweighs your student's right to live. All I can hear is mine, 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 mine. That is Emma Gonzalez. You may have seen Emma along with David Hogg and numerous other students from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. In fact, uh, Brett, you're probably aware of the fact that there is now a planned march on Friday, April 20th, a school walkout to protest gun violence and murders in American schools. Uh, school walkout 
U.S. is the uh, is the Twitter account, and uh, they're saying that on Friday, April 20th, we want students to attend school and then promptly walk out at 10 a.m., sit outside your schools and peacefully protest, make some noise, voice your thoughts. We are students, we are victims, we are change. When you hop on a bike, provincial regulations dictate you must have a helmet on if you're 18 or under, but no similar laws exist for skating on rock-solid ice offered, often peppered with ruts, obstacles, and people, no matter what age you are. We just heard from Global Reporters, our Prem G, on the story of whether or not helmets should be mandatory on outdoor rinks. So today, having coffee, talking, do you think helmets should be mandatory on the ice? Shanalee Vidal, I'm going to start with you because uh, we heard from at least one parent in that report. He said, yeah, I think it should be mandatory. And then I think... To myself, well, just put a helmet on your kid if you think it should be mandatory. No, and that, that's a and that's that's a really good point too, right? Like, as a parent, it's your responsibility to make sure your your kids are safe. But I think I think it's almost like sometimes when when you have that law and when you change that law, and I think like when those cycling laws changed. It, it we can get more adamant about it. It's it's almost like an excuse to get more adamant. And I think parents are kind of reminding themselves, oh, are you wearing your helmet? Make sure you have a helmet, right? Because as someone who, from as a young age, actually ended up with a fractured skull and it had a, was in a coma and almost died um, for, because I wasn't wearing a helmet from you know from doing an activity. Um, I'm def. I think. I think that kids always need to be reminded because even if even if the parents say, yeah, you should wear a helmet or I'm, you know, not because they're not going to be with you all the time. That's the thing, right? You're a roller derby official. Yes. Do you wear a helmet while you're doing that? If I'm on skates, you have to wear a helmet. Everyone has to wear a helmet. That's you have to wear full gear. You have to make sure you're protected. Um, if you're skating, you have to wear a mouth guard. You know, wow. and and if you're if you're a kid uh, and you're a skater, you have to go through a gear check. Right. You have to have us check your gear and make sure make sure it's safe. So, um, especially after going through through roller derby and, and seeing that, and now I if I if I'm ever at a roller derby rink or I see little kids ice skating or something, I I just I cringe and I die a little bit inside because I think, oh my goodness, because you know what could happen. I know what could happen for sure. Hey Jerry, as the only other parent on the panel this morning, I mentioned in our last segment that some. Sometimes that's the ammunition you need as a parent is to say, uh, yeah, it's not it's not just me saying this because I know you already think I'm stupid. Um, you know, it's it, this is the law. Absolutely. And, and when the kids get to a certain age, when they become teenagers, they're not going to listen to you. It's just what teenagers do. They don't listen to the parents. But if it's the law and they think that the police are going to come down on them, <laughs> they're a lot more likely to wear that helmet. <laughs> Christian, you do all sorts of uh, sportsing and uh, exercise and yeah. activities. I referenced that I'm a big guy, and if I were to go down on ice, it would hurt a lot. But you're even bigger, and I know you spend a lot of time on the river trail. Do yeah. you ever think about wearing a helmet? It's never crossed my mind once on the river trail. I have confidence in myself, uh, but I do see every time I go to the forks, people wipe out. And if you're, especially people that are renting skates that have little experience skating, these are. People have been there anywhere from teens to 20s, 30s, 40s, and up. So not all under 18, so you wouldn't necessarily be obliged to do so. But I think it would be a less popular experience for a lot of people if they were forced to wear a helmet. If with your skate rentals, you were also given a bike helmet, for instance. I know I had to 
pretty much wear my helmet growing up because my uncle riding his bike without a helmet is in a wheelchair now because he wiped out without a helmet on on his bicycle. So now I wear a helmet when I'm riding my bike. I don't while rollerblading, though, just on the Winnipeg streets. And I think if I was to wear one anywhere, it would be that just because I've hit cracks in the sidewalk. There's lots of gravel. Very easy to fall on rollerblades, I think, more than it would be on skates. And concrete's pretty dang hard, too. Yeah. I'm astounded that you are, you don't wear a helmet when rollerblading. That's pretty brave. Are you yeah. are you are you in full gear? Do you have full wrist gear. guards on, knee pads? I have uh, shorts and a t-shirt on. <laughs> Sometimes I have a shirt on. I guess Christians. <laughs> oh, 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 paint that picture. Uh, Very white, pasty. Yeah. <laughs> Jeff Braun, don't they, skate. Don't skate. Not an issue. Not an issue for Jeff Braun. They should make it mandatory for kids. I don't know, ten and under, because. You know, kids are clumsy and they're gonna fall, so why not put? Yeah, a helmet I just, on I it? guess, I don't know what parent wouldn't put a helmet on yeah. their kid, ten and under, if they're going to go skating. Sometimes, though, I think people do need that reminder, that little nudge, to say, "Hey, we've gone to the trouble to make a law, so that means it's really a big deal." I, I you know. Clearly, I'm on two minds of this. Well, just first of all, a couple of traffic notes here, by the way. Uh, text messages at 204-780-6868. First one, Highway 8 going to Gimli, snowing very heavy. Uh, watch when vehicles coming the opposite from the opposite direction. You can hardly see, so be careful with that. And then uh, in the city, stalled car westbound on the Nairn overpass in the right-hand lane. So watch out for that as well. Now, Greg... Uh, you know, you're, you're a big advocate for uh, for head injury and brain injury and that sort of thing. The uh, I was reading an article here. I actually just Googled helmets, mandatory ice to see what would pop up. And I found a headline from Winnipeg five years ago. Uh, and it, the headline is basically the, the question we're discussing right now. Should helmet use be mandatory on the ice? It's an old Winnipeg Sun article. And they describe a situation at a hockey rink where one of the coaches went down and was wearing a helmet and was down for the count. Ended up being concussed, but that was it because a helmet was on. Well, there are a lot of people that are under this misconception that helmets prevent concussion. They don't. What they do is they lessen the potential for a dramatic injury like a skull fracture or similar. They can reduce the damage done otherwise. But yeah, if your head's shaking around and bouncing off the ice, guess what? Your brain is shaking around inside of your skull, and that's what causes your concussion. So there's a lot of misconception out there uh, long term in terms of how a concussion takes place. For years, people imagine that if you were not... Uh, if you didn't black out, if you weren't knocked unconscious, you did not suffer a concussion. We know now that that's completely different and, and that's what? not the case. That's true. And you know, I still run into people who still are under that impression that, oh, you didn't get a concussion because you didn't black out. And that is simply not the case. Oh, it couldn't be further no, from ab- the truth. Absolutely not. What about the curling rink? I wiped out way more as a kid on a curling rink than I ever did on a skating rink. Well, I mentioned to Brett that uh, in the Little Rocks program, at least at Elmwood now, uh, all the little kids have to wear a helmet when they're Brad curling. Brad Gushu get a concussion last year falling yeah. on the ice? Yeah, fell forward. It was very nasty injury. It was ugly. National champion. Brad Gushu. Yeah. Did he, did he fall during a, like a televised event? Yeah. yeah. Oh, it was, it was ugly. It was a, a bad fall, yeah. Yeah, very, In very the house, nasty. he lost his balance. He slipped and bang. Yeah, yep. that and might have been two years ago. It was yeah, very, a couple years very, ago. very yeah. nasty and, fall. And so it can my, happen. In my experience, what I've seen, that's how those falls happen. They happen not when you're doing anything, but just... When you're you're not expecting it, maybe you're just 
standing around, you know, talking to someone, and then just unexpectedly you fall and, and you're not expecting it. Yeah, well, there'll be a lot of people that say, uh, based on some of those points, that kids should have helmets on 24 7. Even when they're sleeping, because kids do fall out of the I once, I once threw out my back sleeping, so. <laughs> so did I. <laughs> it's just from a, a yawn or a snore or something. I was like, no. Maybe you <laughs> should exercise more? <laughs> There's a question mark at the end of that statement, Christian. I'm surprised you it's put that suggestion. question mark there. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, you can only do so much, right? And the whole idea of bubble wrapping our kids. But I think there is a line. For certain people, and I think helmets whilst skating is probably a line most of us should be enforcing with or without a bylaw. And we Fair have to say, yeah, we have one email here from Jeff who says, "Oh, for Pete's sake, no! Who is going to enforce this more useless nanny state rules?" The river. We needed some river trail cops with helmets on. <laughs> slapping tickets on people without helmets. Yeah, I, uh, I'm, I'm super reluctant now that I think about it to, to go out on a, onto the river on skates without putting a helmet on, uh, which means I'll have to go with you next time you go to Value Village, Christian, <laughs> uh, to load up on, uh, to reload your wardrobe, and I'll find a helmet there. there well, Mike go. says this, good commentaries on the proposed helmet use for ice rinks. However, something that has always puzzled me is how the city never made it mandatory to use helmets on their crack your head on the cement park or skateboard parks, as they are more commonly known. Well, that's a fair point. You know, so uh, all sorts of uh, great conversation that comes out of this debate. I, I think uh, for someone who, like I say, likes the idea of having that law in my hip pocket to enforce it with my kids, uh, yeah, you have to use some common sense. And if you're not using a helmet, at least as a kid, when you're skating, uh, that common sense is... Please, that's out the window at that point. Shannon Lee Vidal, Christian O'Mell, Jeff Braun, Behind the Glass Jerry, thank you very much. You can text us your thoughts at 204-780-6868. That sound effect and the time means it's time for Breakfast with the Bombers, brought to you by the Cooperators. Find an advisor at cooperators.ca, a better place for you. Today we visit with... Winnipegger and now Winnipeg Blue Bomber, and that sounds really good to me, Nick Dembski, because I got to tell you, I don't make a habit of following Saskatchewan Rough Riders on Twitter, but I broke that rule for you for the last few years. So, uh, welcome home. It's really great to have you aboard uh, on the program this morning, and to have you in blue and gold. How does it, how does it feel now? It's been about a week uh, to sink in. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I appreciate it. Thank you very much for welcoming me. Uh, yeah, I mean, it definitely kicked in. Uh, I'm just excited to get this thing going now. I, I'm just counting down the days till training camp. I can hardly wait. Hey, Nick, uh, it's uh, Brett McGarry here. Football, by nature, obviously, is a nomadic uh, profession. You know, you got to go where the work takes you. Uh, what's it like having to leave your your hometown to go do your job, so to speak? Uh, I mean. You know that that's just kind of the name of the game, as you said. Uh, you know, you got you got to go where they want you, and I mean, Saskatchewan drafted me; they wanted me over there. So, I mean, it, w- it wasn't too tough uh, to to leave my hometown to to go play football. But at the same time, I mean, it was pretty easy to come back. So, uh, you know, just just the name of the game. You got to you got to go where the work's demanded. 
So does it help having a whole plethora of uh, Manitobans now, former Bisons, even the Oak Park Raiders connection? You've got uh, Thomas Miles, Andrew Harris, Abu Conte, uh, and of course Keenan LaFrance coming over with you from Saskatchewan. Is there is there going to be a, a little bit of a club that some of the honorary Winnipegers uh, are going to have to work a little harder to get into this year or what? I mean, yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it, it's pretty cool to have uh, all those familiar faces and, and, you know, there's already some team chemistry there. Um, but, yeah, you know, it's it, it's a good locker room. Uh, I mean, it's going to be fun. I mean, obviously you didn't come here just to, to come home, right? Had the Blue Bombers not been uh, competitive and, and building towards something, I suspect you may have looked elsewhere. What is it that you like about the team? You mentioned the locker room and the group, but in, in terms of what's happened on the field for the Blue Bombers in the last several se- seasons, what do you imagine the, you know, that you're building towards here? I know Grey Cup is going to roll off the tongue, but uh, has this team got the talent to, to take the next step? I mean, I think so. I mean, that, that's definitely something that attracted me uh, over here. I mean, you know, everybody's seen what great things Winnipeg's done recently. And, uh, I mean, everything's just getting more explosive. And, and I mean, we we got a bunch of studs on this team. So, you know, obviously, great cup. That's the goal. Uh, I, I think we can have a really successful season this year if, if we put all the pieces together right. So, I mean, I, I'm I'm excited to see what we can do. Now, Nick, you uh, you had an injury in week 11 of the 2017 season, which uh, took you out for the rest of the season. How's your health as uh, we head into the 2018 campaign? It's great. I mean, uh, about two months ago, I had x-ray. It was my foot that uh, I got injured. I had x-ray. Everything was good to go. I've been training 100% since then. I've been playing a lot of basketball, just you know, make sure that my foot's, foot's uh you know, been ready and, and I've been doing a lot of running and, and I mean, everything's good to go. So I'm, I'm excited. I mean, I'm, I'm coming in there hundred percent and ready to go. Nick Dembski is our guest with breakfast with the bombers at Dembski DM at D E M S K I nine. Uh, have you got your Jersey number picked? Cause, uh, was nine available? What's, what's going nine on on that front? Available. Uh, I mean, uh, Justin Medlock has that one, so I'm pretty sure that was locked in there. Uh, there there's no bait in that guy to give me it, but it's all good. Uh, I'm number 10 now. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's time for a change, I guess. So well, I'm going to no- roll with 10 and uh, rep it hard. Well, number 10 is a jersey that I think some Blue Bomber fans would like to see occupied uh, with another another former Saskatchewan Rough Rider who's also a former Blue Bomber. Have you had any conversations with Enoch Mwamba and, and convinced him to, to come home, so to speak? Uh, I mean, I've, I've talked to Enoch a little bit. Uh, you know, he, he definitely gave me uh, some sort of eyebrow raise to, to see if he's going to come here or not, but... Uh, you know, I haven't spoken to him too recently. I definitely got to shoot him a message uh, sooner or later, though, to, to to get him over here. Now, Nick, one of the things that uh, we always uh, marvel over is how involved the Winnipeg Blue Bombers are with the community and the CFL as a whole. You are involved with, you've been involved with something called Imagine No Bullying. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so Imagine No Bullying was uh, it was a program put on by Red Cross, and uh, I mean, our goal was basically just to to travel to schools and and educate them about how bullying is is you know a negative uh, action that happens in the community, and 
you know, nobody should stand by it. And, and, you know, there's ways to go about it and there's ways to deal with it if you are the victim or, or if you are the target. So, you know, we, we, we just like to go around the schools and, and just give a little bit of positive attitude about, you know, ways of including each other and, and, and not to pick on each other and how respect is a big thing and, and can go a long way. Nick, we appreciate your work on and off the field. Really looking forward to 2018. Great to have you uh, in the fold. And how neat will it be to participate and and to work in the stadium just down the hall from your alma mater at the University of Manitoba Bison? That'll be pretty cool. No doubt. Yeah, I can't wait. As I said, I'm just counting down the days till till training camp starts. So we are too, uh, Nick. Thanks for this. We appreciate your time. And uh, once again, congratulations on uh, signing the contract to come home. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. All right, Nick. Thank you so much. Uh, Breakfast with the Bombers, once again, brought to you by the Cooperators. Find an advisor at cooperators.ca, a better place for you. Before we move on, can we just visit something uh, rather awful that happened over the weekend? Please. Fergie's National Anthem rendition at the ST. Okay, that's enough. I can't hear any more of that. The NBA All-Star Game. Uh, the Black Eyed Peas singer, Fergie, came out in a little black dress, and uh, many people were saying, I don't think I've ever heard the Star Spangled Banner channeled through Mr. Or Happy Birthday, Mr. President. It was horrible. And now she's having to apologize for her uh, brutal, brutal performance of that. Kyle Milroy this morning on What's Brewing was talking about maybe not the worst ever, but it's now climbing the charts. It's it's uh yeah number yeah it's making its way up the chart. Ter- just terrible. I'm speechless on this one. I can't. I didn't know you were going to play that. Yeah, I I just I I went digging for the the audio and I thought maybe we could play more of it, but I just can't take it. I really can't. I tried to watch some of it over the weekend and I couldn't even look. And it's funny looking at the players just trying not to react to it, trying to be as stoic as they can. But there was apparently a little bit of a chuckle, a low rumble chuckle that emerged through the arena when she started singing. Kyle mentioned this this morning as well. By the way, Kyle Milroy from 5 to 6, what's brewing here on 680 CJOB, talking about how Carl Lewis, he played part of Carl Lewis's rendition of the Star Spangled Banner. And I think that was the NBA Finals years ago. It was absolutely dreadful. So ironic. It kind of combined the whole thing, the NBA, the Finals, the Olympics. A nice, tight segue. Last week, we told you about... A controversial protest that's taking place in South Korea at the same time as the Olympics. It's centered on the country's dog meat farms. Our next guest has faced this experience firsthand. Brittany Simnuk has helped to save animals abroad and here to tell us about her experience. Good morning, Brittany. Thank you for coming to see us this morning. Thanks for having me. This is uh, something that I think a lot of people have a great amount of difficulty processing, the idea that this is uh, there's a cultural divide here, right, in terms of what certain animals are used for, and, and people have a real hard time with this. Yeah, it's always difficult to listen to this type of subject matter when we revere dogs as, you know, our family members here at home. Um, a bit that I do want to discuss about um, is kind of people's disconnect between the <laughs> dogs in Asia and what goes on even in our own backyards here with farm animals and things like that, because I find a lot of the misconceptions that people 
um, kind of have towards the dog meat industry is, well, it's their culture. It's what they do. You know, who are we to judge? And it's not always the case because um, there are a lot of similar similar parallels in what we do with our own farm animals here that also should not be happening either. So it is kind of all connected. But I mean, we can get into that a bit later on because it is very difficult for a lot of people to to hear these things about family pets that they love so much and what is going on to them, which is quite terrible. So your personal experience related as it relates to the dog meat issue, what is your experience? Have you been to South Korea to, to protest it? or? Well, I, I'm a veterinary nurse and I have a background in exotics and wildlife medicine. So in 2013, I was granted the opportunity to go move to Vietnam to work for Animals Asia. It's a very large animal welfare organization over there. And so I packed up and I moved over there. And my main responsibilities were going and working at one of the bear rescue centers that they have in Vietnam. So I was medically treating the bears that were rescued from the bear bile trade. We were doing rescues and just trying to give them a quality of life again after the endless suffering that they endured. And then part of that while I was down there was also working with the street dogs. And I didn't know it at the time, but I was fully immersed in the dog meat trade while I was over there. And so we were treating street dogs and then they would get stolen and killed. And I even had some of my own little adopted dogs that I had get stolen and killed, which was really upsetting at the time. And so I really got a lot of firsthand experience fighting the dog meat trade over there. And ever since then, since I've come back to Canada, I've just been a huge advocate for trying to end it once and for all. So how do how do we make a difference in this? Like you mentioned, sometimes there's that disconnect, right? And so uh, we, we look at it as something that's happening halfway across the world, and that's just a cultural thing, uh, even though we don't like it. What can we do if we want to take it to the next level, so to speak? I think one of the biggest ways, which seems to be happening in recent years, is making more of a presence with social media. There's a lot of pressure being put on the various governments just through social media and the petitions and things like that. Even, for example, Yulin, the dog meat festival in China in recent years, is is starting to feel the pressure because globally there's been international coverage. People are talking about it. There are also, I mean, so many other avenues that you can do something and help you. There are organizations over there that you can donate to that are on the front lines trying to save the dogs and shut down different farms and everything like that. You can go and volunteer with these organizations. They take volunteer opportunities. You can adopt a dog and bring it home to live with you in in Canada if you do so choose. So there are a lot of different avenues and ways that you can help. Um, And I think the biggest way is to just understand what goes on with the dog meat trade. There are a lot of misconceptions about it. The dogs that are farmed in South Korea, that's just a small percentage of what actually happens. The majority of dogs, and there's probably over 25 million dogs globally that are killed every year in the Asian dog meat trade. And the majority of those dogs are stolen pets. They're stolen street dogs. It's not, there's nothing traditional or cultural about what's going on over there anymore. I mean, historically, people would, historically through the centuries, people would consume dogs out of, you know, necessity. They were starving and there wasn't a lot of food sources around. And now it's a profitable, it's a profitable booming industry built upon criminal activity and mass suffering. And there's nothing traditional about that, the way that it is happening now. Um, And I think most would agree that with any sort of injustice or cruelty towards human or animal, um, that doesn't really give means to look the other way and label it off as something cultural because there are so many instances in our history that we haven't done that because when we do that, we're just failing 
the very victims and we're just letting it continue, which is not the way to go. So it's a, it's much more complicated than people, I think, initially realize. Brittany Seminuk is our guest. She has helped to save animals abroad, including in Vietnam. And we're having this discussion because of protests that have been happening in South Korea in the light of the Olympics uh, regarding the dog meat trade in South Korea. Now, just looking at a National Geographic article here that says there are no legal consequences for selling dog meat in South Korea, though it is officially classified as detestable along with snake meat, and it says that South Koreans kill an estimated 2 million dogs each year for food, consuming 100,000 metric tons of dog meat. So it's interesting, Brittany, that uh, it's it's something that the country regards as detestable. It's not illegal, but they don't like it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so that <clears throat> this kind of happens, as you pointed out, just sort of behind the scenes. It's like a sketchy industry that... Uh, people do and they shouldn't. Yeah, and I think it's important to note that, you know, when we talk about the dog meat trade in Asia, we're not talking about every single country and we're also not talking about every single civilian within those countries as taking part in the dog meat trade. There are so many local activists down there that are doing all they can to end the trade and there's this there's in recent years there's a lot of um mixed feelings about it where you know the older generation versus the younger generation and now more people in urban areas are adopting pets and seeing them as family members and and it's important to not paint everyone with the same brush when we talk about these issues um, because a lot of people do think it's detestable and they are like you said trying to shut it down and and end the trade so um but Countries like South Korea, China, and Vietnam, it is perfectly legal to be consuming dog meat. What's illegal is stealing the dogs um, and transporting them without any sort of paperwork or licensing. But the actual, you know, slaughtering and all that kind of stuff is totally legal. And it's legal here in Canada, too. People don't often know that in the U.S. and Canada, it's legal to eat dog meat so long as you have a certified inspector witnessing you do it but of course we don't do that here because we just say well we don't eat dogs here obviously there's more to this story than we've been able to unearth and talk about in the last seven minuts or so here Brittany, uh, we'll have to have you back to discuss this on a larger scale thank you for this thank you for the work you do thank you thanks for having me i'm always happy to talk about this stuff one two three Still to come at some point this morning on 680 CJOB, a family four-pack of tickets up for grabs for Disney on Ice presents Frozen at Bell MTS Place March 8th to the 11th. But for right now, it is time for Three Things with Shanalee Vidal, and today it's Three Things You May Have Missed over the long weekend. Hello, Shanalee. Good morning, Brett. Good morning, Greg. Good morning, SLV. I'm glad that it's Tuesday already. Thank you for that little time machine action. Just drop right into it Tuesday. Love it. And so, yeah, it was a long weekend for for most of us. Uh, those people who did have to work, like our, our mail delivery people, good for them. We appreciate the job you do. And Jerry, who was here over the weekend, we appreciate all of you, uh, all of you hardworking people. <laughs> you were here yesterday, Jerry. I was. I was here bright and early, five a.m. Oh well, <laughs> that was your Saturday, if that helps. 
<laughs> Sorry we weren't here with you, buddy. Hey, uh, so what happened over the weekend? Something that we might miss? You know, maybe we're at Festival and, and vibing over the weekend. So there's a lot of things that happened over the weekend. I know this one you guys were talking about just a little while ago. Um, so Fergie, there's a lot of criticism going on about her rendition of the U.S. anthem, or as people are calling it, the Star Mangled Banner. I like that. <laughs> So, and it's what's funny is I'm not going to play a clip from Fergie because uh, you guys just played one a little while ago, and I'm not going to. We don't need to hear it again. Are you sure you don't want to hear it again? <laughs> I think we're good from good for right now. But oh, I, come on, Brett, play it. At the <laughs> All right, that's enough. I feel bad for laughing though, but um, no, if, you didn't, if you didn't drink over the weekend, <laughs> listening to that now may drive you to drink. Okay, so what? Like I said, there was a lot of criticism, but one of the most surprising critics comes from someone who infamously did a horrendous job of singing the national anthem. Now, does anybody remember this? I'll say, can you sing oh, yes. San Diego Padres game. Yeah. Uh, so that was Roseanne Barr back in 1990. 1990. 1990. And, Gee, I know. And on Sunday, Roseanne tweeted, who saw Fergie's national anthem performance at the NBA All-Star Game? I think mine was better low-key. <laughs> nice. Yeah, so. uh, and, that might have been uh, tongue-in-cheek, too. <laughs> and in response to criticism, uh, Fergie said, she is a risk-taker artistically, but clearly this rendition did not strike the intended tone. She says, I love this country and honestly tried my best. And I think she did try. She just completely missed the mark, whereas Roseanne was intentionally trying to be terrible. Yes, Roseanne for sure did that exactly. purposely. Yep. Now, I have a treat for you guys. Oh, no. Speaking of worst anthems, okay, I was listening to The Shift with Jax this morning. He was talking about this, but he also dug up uh, another little piece, and here it is. With growing hearts, we see thee rise, the true and strong and free. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> From far and wide, oh, Canada, oh, Christmas tree we stand on guard for thee. That was from 1994, the CFL, they were expanding into the U.S., and there was a lounge singer who attempted to sing Oh, Canada before a game between the Las Vegas Posse and the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. It's funny because I always feel bad for people who mess up on the U.S. anthem because it is a very hard song to sing, and I think Oh, Canada is such a... It's such a it's a much easier, more pleasurable song to sing, right? It's yeah, just don't more... tell Dennis Parks that. And and there we go. Oh my word! Yeah, yeah. that brings back some good memories, though. That <laughs> that is uh, that is one of the best worst renditions of any song ever. <laughs> so ready for number two? Yep. So we've been like since last we've been going, we've been seeing the rock band Headley implode. Yeah. Uh, uh, now they say they have withdrawn from consideration for three awards from this year's Juno. So they plan to talk about how I quote, "We have let some people down and what we intend to do about it." So last week, them they're they were dropped by their management team. They're blacklisted by many radio stations in the wake of sexual misconduct allegations that had been circulated by anonymous social media users. And in a statement released yesterday, the band says it's not going to actually be canceling any of their shows that they have booked through March 23rd because the, the, the easy thing to do would just be cancel the tour and hide. Incidentally, they're going to be in Winnipeg uh, next month on March 17th. They were just in Brandon, I believe, that's, last Friday that's, night. That's right. I think I think last Thursday, actually, Thursday? At, at the Keystone Center. And they released a 
Batista actually released another statement last Wednesday calling those allegations involving young fans unsubstantiated, but acknowledged they engaged in a lifestyle that incorporated certain rock and roll cliches. And on this tour, they're keeping the tour, but their openers have both dropped out, Neon Dreams <laughs> and Sean Hook. And last week I had read that Sean Hook said that he wasn't going to pull out. He was going to, and I quote, fulfill my contractual obligations. But now he has gone and... Uh, clearly, he has learned more than he wanted to learn or has just changed his mind yeah. on that. So yeah. uh, this is a story that uh, is going to continue to develop, I suspect. Absolutely. So now for number three, if you ever gone to an art gallery or a museum, you yes. see the security guards. <laughs> yes, the security guards, the cameras, making sure you don't touch something you're not supposed to. And it's a very important job, right? Sure. Because you know what? Also, they don't want people walking off with something priceless, you know, or damaging it. Seems reasonable. So unfortunately, that's what happened to an uh, to a Pablo a Pablo Picasso print, an original Pablo Picasso print worth an estimated fifty thousand dollars, happened in Milwaukee at, at an art gallery. So WITI TV reports that an appraiser named Bill DeLind says his business partner noticed the original 1949 print was missing from their art appraisals uh, venue on Friday, and someone could have just walked in because the uh, because the door was not locked <laughs> okay. and, and noticed it because he and his partner were upstairs, and the gallery doesn't have surveillance cameras. Wow. So, and Picasso only did, like I said, it's a it's a print. It's not an actual painting. It's a print of a painting. He only did thirty of these prints, and each one is signed in crayon in the lower right hand corner. So it's still very very valuable. Like I said, worth fifty thousand dollars, but a a good excuse to have cameras around. Yeah, no kidding. And keep your doors locked. Well, they should find out where Matt Bomber was uh, this past weekend. He starred in White Collar. I don't know if you watched White Collar at all when it hit no. Netflix, but uh, very quickly, Matt Bomber played a guy who was the world's one of the world's top uh, foragers. He could forage just about anything, including priceless works of art, and would figure out ways to exchange them, and so that he could steal uh, and get the treasure and the money associated with uh, stealing works of art like this. So. I would find out where Matt Bomber was this oh. past weekend. Oh my goodness. If and I were the FBI. And before you run away, Shanalee. Oh, the Well, that, that part's not entirely awful. It wasn't all terrible. It was it was just like that. When she does things like that and and chunks yeah. of it in isolation. Chunks of it in isolation are, are, okay. are okay, but yeah. overall it was a disappointment. Fail, fail. Well, Hashtag fail. Three things with Shanna Lee Vidal. Thank you very much. Mackling McGarry in the morning. Brett, do you buy stuff on Kijiji? Have you ever sold anything on on the Kijiji? I have uh, sold a couple of things and I have bought uh, actually quite a few things on Kijiji. Yeah. The second-hand economy is something that's accelerated with the use of technology. I know when eBay jumped on the scene back about 20 years ago, it was an opportunity for collectors in particular to sell their wares and to find out the value and to turn that into cash. An estimated $28.5 billion worth of second-hand items changed hands in 2017. That's in Canada. That's a lot. It's <laughs> a lot. Wow. Kijiji's fourth annual index report researchers found that Canada's secondhand economy continues to thrive with more Canadians than ever getting in on the action in one form or another. To tell us more, we're joined by award-winning writer and media personality, Kathy Buckworth. Good morning, Kathy. 
Good morning. How are you today? We're doing really well. Thanks for taking some time uh, with us today. Kathy is the a parent of 11-year-old twin boys. I have to buy <laughs> everything in duplicate, right? Two pairs of skates, two sets of hockey equipment, two baseball gloves, you name it. And Kijiji yeah. is kind of our best friend in mitigating some of those costs when we have to upgrade because there are no hand-me-downs in my house. That's very true. When you have, yeah, when you have twins, that's exactly right. You're buying things at the same time. I have four kids. They're all different ages, but the same sort of thing. We're going through, you know, ski equipment or we're going through, you know, all kinds of sporting stuff as we are alluding to as well. It gets really expensive. So the great news out of this, um, uh, the secondhand economy index that was released um, by Kijiji is the fact that Canadians are pretty smart, right, about the secondhand market. And on average, we're finding, you know, saving almost $2,000 a year uh, buying and selling on the second hand market. So, you know, the average raise that a Canadian gets in their job is less than that. It's only about $1,700. So we're sort of giving ourselves a raise every year when we can really take advantage of the market. And, you know, Winnipeggers are, you know, really active in this market as well. In fact, they're the most likely to to donate items. So they're second, actually, behind London, Ontario, but across the rest of the country, Winnipeggers are donating record numbers of items to each other. And of course, the secondhand economy, besides being Kijiji, also includes things, you know, like your garage sale or you're giving it to your sister's kids or all of those things. So it's all this sort of exchange of goods that we do in many different ways. So the secondhand economy index, mm-hmm. what is this index? What the index is measuring is uh, how many items are changing hands between Canadians which, uh, without going into the marketplace, so to speak. So uh, these are things that are not being sold new at retail. These are things we're listing online. About half of, uh, half of Canadians have bought or sold something on Kijiji. That's like 16 million people. So this is a huge number. Um, so we're exchanging on average across the country, I don't know, something like 80 different items between people. So those things that we're really doing person-to-person or through our own communities. And I think there would be speculation or the belief that uh, lower income people are those that are most active, not necessarily the case. Not necessarily the case. The number one reason that people gave uh, for buying and selling secondhand items for selling, it's decluttering. And it's also to make a bit of cash, of course, but it's getting rid of those things, right? So whether you're donating and then if you're selling and getting cash and buying them is obviously we are looking to save money, but there's also that sort of treasure hunting that goes on on Kijiji, you know, the vintage dresser that you always wanted or things from your childhood um, and things that just make sense for you to buy secondhand because they weren't used that much by the original owner. Um, So we're seeing a lot of that. Not surprisingly, millennials and Gen Xers are taking advantage of buying most often on Kijiji. And who's selling? The baby boomers who are probably downsizing. They want to get rid of stuff. Myself, I have, like I said, I have four kids between the age of 15 and 26. I have so much stuff that I'm trying to get out of the house once the kids are starting to move out. So that's where a lot of that is coming from. Number one item uh, being exchanged is clothing, shoes, accessories. Um, then you're going to see DVDs, books. Baby clothing and accessories is huge um, on that market as well. And furniture, all of those things that really are household-type items that we really need to either get rid of or we want to accumulate, depending on our stage of life. Well, another thing that I notice too, sometimes when I go on Kijiji, and I think this speaks to just how successful the second-hand economy is, is that stores advertise on Kijiji. Uh, sometimes mm-hmm. uh, antique stores or used furniture or what have you, but the store people that have brick-and-mortar shops in this business want people on Kijiji to realize or to take advantage of their yeah. stores, so they come to Kijiji for help. 
They do. And at any time, you're going to find something like 6.1 million different items listed on Kijiji. So you're going to find what you need, probably. But what's great about that, too, is if you're thinking of buying something, you can do a lot of research, obviously, online first. But if you're thinking of selling, you can also get a really good sense of maybe what you might expect to earn if you're really looking to save some money in that economy. So, um, you know, it's a fantastic resource for that as well. And it's uh, surprising how many people have never heard of Kijiji for as active <laughs> as it is. I but is it? Well, I think the people that use it use it a lot. Do you know what I mean? And yes. So, and, and what's great is year over year, we find people are using it more. So there's more of a comfort level with selling your items online, with meeting up with buyers and sellers. You know, so I think people are just used to that sort of way of doing business now, and it grows every year. And that is part of the social aspect, though, that people have had to take account of, right? How do you exchange these items safely? How do you interact with one another safely? Something that, you know, we really didn't give second thought to maybe six, seven years ago, uh, but several high-profile cases have changed how Mm -hmm. we interact with one another on Kijiji. That's right. And our, you know, our, our online community can be obviously quite a bit bigger than just, you know, participating in a neighborhood garage sale or something like that. So we can find more things and we can sell more things because of, you know, the community that we find online for these items. What are some of the top categories in the secondhand economy? As I mentioned before, the top ones exchange in 2017, uh, pretty constant, uh, pardon me, consistent with past years. So clothing, shoes, accessories are always actually going to be near the top. Entertainment items, however you define that, DVDs. Uh, baby items, as we mentioned. But the one item that made the top five this year that wasn't in it last year is furniture. So I, you know, we're seeing a lot of furniture being moved out and being sold. So, um, you know, I can speculate on that again in terms of perhaps it's the baby boomers who are downsizing where they live. Um, and it's also, we're seeing, you know, millennials really, and Gen Xers, of course, buying homes and needing to furnish those homes if they can afford one, <laughs> you know, and, but that's the thing with, when you're looking at housing economies like Toronto, where I am, or Vancouver, any, you know, the housing index is, is so overpriced right now that they're looking for ways to save money when they're filling those houses with furniture. Hey, Kathy, you mentioned uh, housing and as someone who has a, uh, a handful of uh, rental properties, it's the only place I advertise my rental properties. And uh, to my knowledge, it's the only place people look for rental yeah. properties. Yeah, I mean, it really is. I mean, Kijiji is, the, you know, Canada's number one online uh, listing place. And as I mentioned, when we look at six million, you know, items online at any time, um, you're certainly going to find what you're looking for. And you know what? You're going to have a lot of options, too, which is great. It's not going to be the only thing that you find. So, you know, such a great meeting place for buyers and sellers. Kathy Buckworth, I think we'll have to leave it there. But thank you so much for joining us this morning on 680 CJOB. Thank you for having me. All right. Kathy Buckworth is an award-winning writer, author of six books, media personality, and spokesperson on behalf of the second-hand economy. And Kijiji found in its fourth annual index report to the second-hand economy that the it continues to thrive. 2.3 billion items changed hands last year in Canada, and second-hand buying and selling put nearly $2,000 in the average participant's pockets, more money than the average pay raise. Welcoming back to the studio, two individuals we've had over the years at different times, never at the same time. Alexa Potashnik is founder of Black Space Winnipeg and Ben Williams from the Winnipeg Film Group, who I think was in the studio last with me about four or five years ago, Ben, at about 6.30 on a Saturday morning. So great to see you at a more reasonable hour and great to catch up with you again. Thanks for this. Thank you. Coming up, uh, we are going to be celebrating 
the Afro Prairie Film Festival. It's taking place this weekend at Cinematheque. It is the first black-centric film festival across the prairies that is dedicated to the support and exposure of emerging and established black filmmakers across Canada. For three days, participants can look forward to a weekend filled with education, workshops, and a chance to explore black narratives in filmmaking. So, Ben, uh, let's start with you. Uh, Before we do anything... Can you just describe what you have here? Because you've got your your iPhone set up in a in this really neat little rig that I've never seen before. What is this? That's cool. It's called a B script. I've had that for several years. Uh, basically, it sets up your iPhone so that you can put it on a tripod, put a lens in, and all this other stuff. I've done a few shows on this already before, so it's kind of cool. It is neat because uh, now all of a sudden the power of that iPhone, that computer in your pocket or Samsung Galaxy or whatever device you might be using, genuinely becomes a filmmaking tool because the cameras have become that good. They're that good, man. It's uh, 4K, uh, iPhone 7 Plus. So, yeah, mm-hmm. people are making movies with their phones and, and they're using other the older tools as well. Well. So what can people expect this weekend, uh, Ben, from the Afro Prairie Film Festival? Well, we have uh, we have at least uh, eight, or I'm sorry, we have about six films that are feature films. Uh, we have a few workshops, and we have a short film program that's also going to be going on. Um, and all the films uh, that are features are from notable filmmakers uh, in Canada and the U.S., and uh, we have a special guest Charles Burnett, who's actually a legend and one of the more important filmmakers in film, period. He's going to be here. He's going to give a workshop, and he's also going to um, be showing his film uh, to... Uh, to uh, my, my mess up. On, uh, uh, on Sunday. To sleep with anger on yeah, Sunday. With on anger. Sunday so. So uh, Cinematech, obviously a huge part of the of the film uh, industry and the burgeoning uh, filmmaking group. You've got, of course, uh, such a, a huge uh, establishment of filmmakers and, and burgeoning filmmakers, uh, Ben, yourself with the Winnipeg Film Group. But Alexa, talk about uh, the impetus for this and this gathering and, and creating this whole film festival in the first place. Yeah, so last year we partnered with Cinematech to screen uh, the film I'm Not Your Negro, which was written by James Baldwin and directed by Raul Peck and we had an amazing response from the public and since then we opened the door to a partnership with uh, Black Space and the Winnipeg Film Group Cinematheque and we've had about five film screenings since then so uh, with along with Ben and David who is at uh, the film group as well uh, we just thought it would make sense to have a festival dedicated to black films and to be honest other than in Toronto and Montreal, there's nothing really uh, west or in central Canada. This is the first black film festival, and we're really excited to be the first of something that is really important. Um, but I think it just came out of the need for uh, diversity and inclusion, and s- oftentimes folks forget that black people live in the prairies and live in Winnipeg, <laughs> and we are here, and we are very proud to uh, showcase our talents. Half of the, actually most of the filmmakers that are in the Emerging Black Filmmakers uh, Shorts program are mostly from Winnipeg. Well, and, uh, and Ben, actually, I'll, I'll run this past because often movies that are aimed at a black audience in the United States don't even open here. Like yeah. big films, like anything Tyler Perry does, always opens number one in the United States. And I think only one of his movies has ever played here in a movie theater. Mm-hmm. What do you think of that? 
Well, I mean, I'm from the U.S., so um, uh, I have a my perspective is is this. Uh, even in the states, we we don't even have a lot of black filmmakers or directors that are actually out there doing their thing. They get cut off from Hollywood and also in the independent scene. So uh, when you look at that, and then you come here. It's even smaller. You know, the cast is smaller. However, there's a lot of great stuff coming out of uh, Toronto um, and uh, in Montreal. Um, and I guess the thing is, uh, you don't have enough black people that are actually out there making films. And so uh, I remember recently there was, uh, I guess last year sometime, there was a gentleman who was showcasing his film. And there was an audience of black folks uh, in, in um um, St. Boniface and he's like a, he's only made two films and one of the things that the people said was we've never met a black filmmaker before everybody was saying that and they were so proud uh, Patrick Magoza and it was just like a, an amazing thing to see all the you know I work at the film group and I see film audiences all the time and I've never seen this audience before and you know, I've been working at the film for four years now in April, and in that time, I've only seen two, maybe two or three filmmakers, black filmmakers in that time making films. And, you know, they're there. We just don't have, uh, you know, there's not enough representation. We need a platform. Well, Alexa, that's what I was going to ask you about, this idea of having a platform to to share your story. What is the value in that as a community? Well, I think this is going to bring people together in the right way. And as much as we're doing this, obviously, for and supporting black folks, uh, Winnipeg at large is really going to benefit from this because it's a going to prove that we are here. We do exist. And there's such great talent and uh, that these initiatives really, really, really need to be supported. And I can't stress that enough. And since this is the first uh, annual uh, go at it, um, we're extremely excited. But like Ben said, filmmakers, black filmmakers exist. It's just a matter of creating that space in the dominant uh, culture. And uh, as far as I know, most of the things we've done at Black Space has really taken over the Winnipeg art scene. So I think uh, we're always trying to add some spice and diversify these uh, these spaces. Well, Alexa, we only have about uh, 60 seconds, but I, I have to ask uh, the both of you, the, the overwhelming success of Black Panther oh, oh, yes. this weekend. <laughs> uh, have you seen Good it? timing for this. Yeah, I'm was, sure you planned it. No, we did not. <laughs> um, we, we had a really good talk about it in the car. Uh, epic film. Without spoiling anything, I love the film. Uh, though, as a black male from the States, I do feel that uh, there uh, are some issues with the film that I have, uh, you know, just because I have a consciousness. And I believe that uh, though it is a fantastic film and everybody should go see it without a doubt, uh, I do think that... Uh, if you have an Afro- Afrocentric uh, perspective, you might want to just say, I appreciate all this, but I'm also looking at this part that was cut out. I know why they did it. It's very important that they did the movie and, you know, it's all good. I'm 45, right? So basically growing up, all the films, you know, I love comic books and I love superheroes. And the only heroes that we've had in films are like Blank Man, which is a joke. Uh, Hancock, which is a disgruntled black guy, superhero, fun, fun film, but it's just like, you know, that's a representation. And then you have, uh, I guess, Spawn and also, uh, what was the other Blade. movie? Blade. 
Oh, Blade. Blade, which was a fantastic film. Didn't get the acclaim that it deserved to get. But, like, this is all that we have. And so, for the first time, like, you have, you can be very proud. I mean, first of all, Africa is being presented in a very, uh, you know, technological and advanced way. And then you have these beautiful, amazing black men and women on screen. And, you know, and the women just like, what? Are you kidding me? So, I mean, I'm very proud of of the film. The big issue for me mostly is just the fact that, like, you know, they had to pacify the film in order for everybody to really uh, make a, you know, to for it to be what it is. You know, so uh, I, I think I'm just I just hold it at a very critical high level, both as a filmmaker, but up, and as a black man, mostly. When you say, so, yeah, they had to pacify it. What do you mean? Well, there's some themes in there, which without spoiling the film, um, it kind of uh, diminishes the black struggle in the U.S. and also in Africa. Uh, I feel that's a problem. You know, I think, you know, and then there's this whole uh, very passive way of how they kind of, you know, ended the film. It's like any other Hollywood film. I really enjoyed it. I'm not going to lie. But, you know, I just think that it basically, uh, I'm not going to say it copped out, but I know it was trying to make money. So they were trying to bridge everybody. Um, when in the meantime, it kind of uh, minimized uh, the struggle. Um, and based on its success, maybe they didn't need to do that. No, they because, didn't need to. Because obviously people were prepared to go and see this film with all the hype and all the conversation around it and and how it was viewed as sort of a defining moment in terms of, of uh, black culture worldwide, not just in the United States. Alexa, when, when you see a film like that and, and, and you see uh, the story behind the story, it, d- does it bother you? You know, Do you agree with Ben in terms of uh, maybe a little bit of a sanitized version or a rewriting of history? Does that, does that diminish somewhat uh, the power that this film is, is, will have eventually or is having now? Well, yeah, even in the car, I think what Ben's trying to get at is the more uh, radical and perhaps uh, militant approach to a uh, black film such as this one. But I, spoiler alert, I haven't seen it yet, but I've 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 seen critical analysis on it and um, a lot of conversations around what people hope for it to be. I think it just being there is um, important because, yes, you see representation, but at the same time, some may argue it's also a distraction too, right? Like this is uh, a black film, fantastic. We can finally see ourselves on the big screens, but not necessarily. Um, it, this this doesn't mean that black people have made it right. uh, collectively. Uh, we have not overcome the struggle. We are still facing barriers, especially in the film industry itself. Uh, and this is just uh, another way of keeping us... Um, at a place uh, until uh, we need something else. And is that part of the pacification that you're, you're you're talking about as well? Just a maybe this is a a pacifier for for uh, for the black community for it's, Africans Amer- African Americans overall. It's a bridge, and don't get me wrong. I will see it again. I really love the film, but I just I'm just being conscious and being aware of of the the message that it, it sent. This isn't a stamp. This isn't a as Alexa would say. Yeah, okay, we we've made it. And yeah, and all is good with the world. It's like, a beautiful it's, film. It's still I loved a movie. it. I, I loved it. You know, but like you know, you have a movie like Birth of a Nation, which I think everybody should see. That's a hero film to me. That's right. <laughs> 
So I don't know. I'm being militant, I guess, today. No, and <laughs> well, I no, appreciate and we appreciate the, the perspective on this, and we'll uh, we'll talk more about the program for the Afro Prairie Film Festival in a moment. I just have one more follow up question uh, for you, Alexa. When you see the success of a movie like Black Panther, or last year we had the success of Get Out, which oh, was yes. uh, written oh, and directed movie. by a black mm-hmm. man and featured uh, uh, a black man in the lead, does this give you hope? That Hollywood is going to continue to look for sto- to tell stories involving black people that where they're not just like the the quote unquote token black guy who yeah. always gets killed first in the for horror sure. movie or whatever. Absolutely, I think that uh, we are really starting to see uh, a shift in the industry. But at the same time, um, I know it's hard for black folks to get their foot in the door in this industry as well. And I'm not uh, a filmmaker, at least uh, yet. But from what I've seen from my friends and uh, having conversations with Ben and just with campaigns like Oscars So White, um, even locally, uh, I can say that every time Fringe comes around, you know, that's that's a festival dedicated to just uh, theater um, and the arts. And I never see black representation. So Hollywood might be, yes, addressing this um, slowly but surely. Um, I don't think it's going to change overnight, but I am hopeful that um, uh, resources will be uh, properly distributed towards and uh, black filmmakers at large, I, I hope, at least. So we got a couple of minutes left here, uh, circling back to the Afro Prairie Film Festival. Uh Tell us a bit more about the program. It's happening Friday to Sunday. Yes. So we are opening with a film from Amandine Gay, who is a black French feminist uh, from Montreal. Um, Ouvria Lavoie uh, opened The Voice en Francais. And uh, that's the first time Black Space has done uh, French programming. So we're really excited about it. Uh, each major feature is followed with a Q&A. And on Friday, we're also having, having an opening reception, which is free to the public. And uh, a local artist by the name of Marisol Nagash will be playing at 930 in Platform Gallery. Saturday is dedicated to the emerging black filmmakers at 3 p.m. Um, we'll be uh, giving out an award, the Winston W. Moxham Award, who was a local black filmmaker um, in his honor. So that's happening at 3. Then we have a panel discussion following that at 5 p.m. about being a black filmmaker in the prairies. Uh, after that, uh, Corey Bull's film Black Cop, which is, from what I've heard, incredible, um, will be screening at at 9 p.m. And then the masterclass, which is happening on Sunday, this is Sunday programming now, um, with Charles Burnett at the Rachel Brown Theater. That's at 2 p.m. We're so excited for that. Uh, then 4 p.m. on Sunday at Cinematheque is Pariah, uh, which really connects a lot of black and queer narratives, and it's a very beautiful film. And then we're ending it with To Sleep With Anger, and uh, Mr. Burnett will be uh, answering some questions. And we're just, I think that's what I'm looking forward to the most, is having someone um, at a level of like Spike Lee come to the festival. How do people get tickets? Uh, you can buy tickets at winnipegfilmgroup.com slash Afro Prairie Film Festival, and you can search up the Afro Prairie Film Festival uh, on Facebook and our Instagram as well. And your website as well, blackspacewpg.ca. Yes. Alexa Potashnik is the founder of Blackspace Winnipeg, and Ben Williams from the Winnipeg Film Group. Once again, the 2018 Afro Prairie Film Festival happening this weekend, presented by Blackspace Winnipeg and Winnipeg Film Group at Cinematheque in celebration of Black History Month. Alexa, Ben, thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you for having us. Thank you.
There's no mistaking uh, the name of our next guest. Dr. Benedict Albenzi is the gentleman we call on. He's one of the leading researchers in Alzheimer's disease in Canada. He's a principal investigator in the Synaptic Plasticity and Cellular Memory Dysfunction Lab in the Division of Neurodegenerative Disorders at the Albrechtson Research Centre. He's the Manitoba Dementia Research Chair and the Everett Endowment Fund Chair. Uh, We reached out to him because uh, an article in Forbes magazine got my attention late last week. It's entitled, Researchers Halt the Development of Alzheimer's Disease in Mice and Partially Reverse Its Effects. Dr. Albenzi joins us now. Uh, Ben, thanks for this. We appreciate your time as always. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, we appreciate you you jumping on this. Um, Tell us a little bit about what you learned from this article and is it a reason to get excited? I think it is a reason to get excited from a, a biological point of view. I, I think it's a, it's a milestone, really. They did a couple of things that I don't usually see in, in the literature for Alzheimer's disease research. Uh, they worked with a mouse that they created. It's a genetically engineered mouse, a transgenic mouse, as it's called. And what they did is they were able to control uh, the production of a particular enzyme that we see in processing of an important protein in Alzheimer's disease pathology. And, and so I'm talking about a protein called amyloid precursor protein, or APP. And this is a molecule that exists, uh, it spans the membrane. We don't have a complete understanding of what it does, but what we think it does is that it's involved in neuronal growth and repair. And this protein gets cut, and it gets cut in specific places, and there are enzymes that are responsible for cutting this protein in specific places. We know that the way it's cut will result in a so-called pathogenic uh, cleavage pattern or a neuroprotective cleavage pattern. So they're studying one of the enzymes that's involved in the cleavage of this protein, and they, they are able to control the production of this enzyme in their mouse model. And really, the two things that, that are really uh, noteworthy in this study is that they saw a decline in the formation of new plaques, uh, and they also saw the elimination of plaques that were formed already. And that's pretty cool. So they were able to control the production um, of this enzyme, and they saw you know, the end result, of course, are these sticky, toxic proteins that we called amyloid plaques. And A-beta is a constituent of that. And they had a lot of control uh, in this mouse model. So, and you do a great job of, of giving us a high-level uh, view of this, uh, Dr. Albenzi. But in simpler forms, is this, or simpler language, is this something then the protein that the body already produces and they're finding a way to promote more production of this protein? Maybe uh, tell us what, the, what, that, what that step is that they're trying to do and, and the benefit they think it will have. Well, the first part you had right is that APP is a normal protein. Uh, The way it's cleaved is also a normal process, but really it's not creating more of it. It's we want to create less of it. Mm. And because the base one enzyme is responsible for a cleavage pattern that goes down the path that we don't want to go down. And so by gradually eliminating uh, excessive amounts of this this enzyme, they were able to decrease the number of plaques and also get rid of plaques that are already formed to a near zero level. And that's that's really remarkable. So this is an idea of reducing something that is uh, creating these uh, unhealthy pathways and trying to uh, dial that back somewhat. That's exactly right. And so 
the, there's a caveat, though, because they, and this helps to, uh, with our understanding of the biology of, of this protein, is that so they were able to eliminate the plaque uh, in this mouse model, but they also found some other side effects. So growth was affected, glial growth, neuronal growth, and some other aspects of learning and synaptic plasticity were affected also by decreasing um, the enzyme that was responsible for, you know, the, the formation of the plaque. Dr. Albenzi, uh, Brett McGarry here. Is there any hope that this kind of research can one day soon be applied to human beings? I think certainly it, it's going to be applied to human beings. To say soon, uh, I, I can't really comment on that. I don't think it's going to be tomorrow. It won't be next year. We just saw several failures in drug trials uh, across uh, the U.S. and Canada over the last year or two. Lilly, of course, they had their Expedition 1, 2, and 3 clinical trials fail, and they just published the results of their third failure. Um, so these are drugs that target A-beta processing and A-beta and we've seen this with a number of drug companies. In fact, we saw Pfizer pull out of the neuroscience market and Alzheimer's disease uh, drug uh, exploration. Um, what we've learned from those failures, though, is that we, they started targeting A-beta in Alzheimer's disease patients, and they thought they should go to earlier stages. And then they went to MCI, which stands for mild cognitive impairment. So those are patients in even earlier stages. The drugs failed in those. And so now the thinking is, is that perhaps we need to even go to earlier stages. And I agree with that. I, I also think that we're perhaps tossing uh, good money after bad, so to speak, um, because even though we are getting a better understanding of A-beta and how to target A-beta, there might be other mechanisms that might be more important to target. However, this sort of study uh, does show it supports the notion that we have to really get after A-beta very, very early in the process to have any benefit at all. But it's, the thing is, is that how early is too early and how, how late is too early? So what's the critical window of opportunity to apply drugs that interfere with this pathway? That's what we haven't quite figured out yet. So all these drugs that are failing are probably still targeting A-beta way too late in the process. So if we start doing it 20 years earlier, well, maybe it'll be beneficial. But how does that work from a practical point of view? How does that work from an economic point of view? And how do we determine who gets the drug and who doesn't? Because they haven't really shown the classic overt signs of pathology. Has the, the classic or the traditional method, Dr. Albenzi, uh, in fighting Alzheimer's have to do with, with uh, halting the, the, the negative proteins, the bad actions that are taking place in our brain versus trying to encourage uh, the production of, of healthy proteins and the ones that we need in order to keep, keep our brains healthier? Has it been an equal balance of, of both approaches? Well, I think you, you used an important word there is that um, – it is the balance that we're trying to find and which the type of balance we're trying to tip one way or the other. And so we do want to try to tip the balance in our favor. So we want to encourage all those biochemical mechanisms and, and pathways that deal with uh, neuroprotection and that favor alpha secretase, which is another enzyme that'll get this APP molecule to cleave a different way. We want to encourage all of that to tip the balance in our favor. Um, and perhaps we can do that earlier uh, you know, at earlier time points, and that would be to everyone's benefit. In my lab, we're trying, we, are, we also have an uh, understanding and we appreciate A-beta is involved, but we're looking at A-beta 
targeting the mitochondria. And we see our deficits in our mouse models as early as two months. And we believe that A-beta is affecting the mitochondria way before memory impairment, way before plaques form. And it might take something that early to actually have benefit. Can you give us the elevator uh, description, the 30-second description of mitochondria and the role that it plays in our brain health? Well, of course, the mitochondria is the so-called powerhouse of the cell. These are the organelles that produce ATP, which is the energy currency. We get all of our energy from the mitochondria. Well, we get almost all of our energy from the mitochondria. Uh, when they fail or when they age, you know, and they produce less ATP, it's just like your furnace not putting out the heat it used to, or your engine in your car not putting out the horsepower that it used to. So we, you know, we see this as a normal process of aging, but also... Uh, we see it in disease, and it's just like using bad gas in your car engine. If you do this for long enough, you're going to see the end result in horsepower. It's the same thing with our mitochondria. If we don't eat good foods, if we don't exercise, we don't maintain optimal mitochondrial health, and we're going to see the end result in disease, just like an engine that's not performing uh, as efficiently as it could. It sounds like a severely and a dramatically uh, medical terminology or scientific terminology, but really what it is, and, and you highlighted it there, we, we have a little bit of control possibly on, on the health of that mitochondria by the things that, that we do uh, with diet, with exercise, uh, etc. Yeah, I think what we need to do, I mean, we really to try to need to reach our genetic potential. And we can reach our genetic potential by uh, providing all the energy. We, we don't want the, our brains to use energy for protection. We really want to divert that so that the energy that is produced is used for growth and production. And that might seem like a subtle distinction, but it's an important distinction. So the energy that is manufactured by the mitochondria and other uh, processes, we want to go into growth and healthy uh, brain processes, not not a uh, a fight for the ATP in order to just to resort to neuroprotection, if that makes sense. Dr. Albenzi, always fascinating to speak with you. I, I uh, hope we did okay in deciphering uh, the discussion this morning. We appreciate uh, your work immensely. Thank you, Greg. Thanks for having me. All right, Dr. Benedict Albenzi, Manitoba Dementia Research Chair Professor for the Department of Pharmacology and Therapeutics at the University of Manitoba on the subject of an article entitled Researchers Halt the Development of Alzheimer's Disease in Mice and Partially Reverse Its Effects. Thanks to Behind the Glass Jerry, Shanley Vidal, I'm Brett McGarry, he's Greg Mackling. Thank you for listening to 680 CJOB. Manitoba.